Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name's Jeff Hutchinson. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Christ Presbyterian Church. Let me begin with two thoughts. Here's thought number one. The revelation from God that he adopts us into his family as sons and daughters of him, our Heavenly Father, is the highest privilege of the gospel, the highest privilege of the good news. Thought number two is that this truth, this doctrine that God sends his son to adopt us into his family, making us his sons and daughters, is not only the the highest truth of the Christian life, but it's to be the controlling paradigm, the controlling thought, the normative category for the whole of our lives, the eyeglasses that we put on so that we can see everything more clearly. So hold those two thoughts for a moment. Um, I, I begin with those because uh, I'm, I'm, I've been looking forward to preaching today um, and uh, the follow-up teaching at the church-wide retreat, which is next weekend. I hope many of us can be there. Ever since the session, uh, Preston and Kevin and the elders of this church chose as the theme this doctrine of adoption, of sonship, of being sons and daughters of God. Uh, That sports rhetoric that I hear all the time, go big or go home. They chose as a theme this remarkably vital and controlling doctrine. Now, if we get away for a church-wide retreat, which doesn't happen very often, in this life of this church, it's just once every three years, there's a lot of things that I'd go to a retreat for. I mean, I'd go if it was a retreat on finances. I need help with that. I'd I'd go if it was a retreat on on parenting. I have three children. I'd need help with that. I'd go if it was a retreat on how to be a faithful, godly citizen of a particular nation, in light of our current blue state, red state divides, I'd, I'd go to retreat on that. Um, I was a little disappointed that, I mean, the elders know, like, my financial circumstances. I wanted them to have a church-wide retreat on how to sell a house in zip code 06119, which is West Hartford, and how to live by faith in the meantime. I mean, that's, that's my situation, and I want the whole church to come on a retreat to learn that that very specific topic that would be very, very helpful. To, so they, they, didn't, they didn't choose that. They, they didn't choose to do some micro topic. And even some of those other topics I mentioned are very helpful, but they're all second-tier topics. They went big or go home. The, the topic is this doctrine of adoption, which our tradition teaches, and our tradition teaches it because we believe the scriptures teach it clearly, and certainly the texts that we just had read for us teach it. We believe that this truth is, in fact, the highest privilege of the good news and, in fact, the controlling paradigm of the Christian life. So as we do that, as we look at this passage this morning, as we consider that um, this really is worthy of a sermon and sermons and and a a church-wide retreat, a time to get away and meditate upon these things, 
Um, we're going to let the text take us into this beautiful truth more deeply in just a moment. But um, here's, a, here's a third thought I want to just give to you here on the front end. So thought number one was this doctrine is the highest privilege. Thought number two is it's to be the controlling paradigm. But here's a, another kind of completely different thought. I'm going to need my um, cell phone here for this. Um, side. All right, because this, these are facts that I'm not exactly going to commit to memory here, but um, all right, so here's this, here's this other idea. Um, h- how often have you thought and do you now think about this truth, that your life, your particular life, the fact, not only that you're here today, but the fact that you are actually even alive in the first place is a statistically impossible miracle. How often do you think and dwell on that fact? So leaving aside for a moment the statistic impossibility of a planet being created that can sustain you know, oxygen-breathing life forms or whatever, uh, leaving aside um, the, the need for our parents and our grandparents to have reached childbearing age so that they could, like this, this, the, in light of death rates, and just leave all those statistics out of this equation. Each, each part of that just makes it all that much more impossible. But just think simply about this idea. Namely, how many parents, how many biological parents does each of us have? Two. So how many biological grandparents? Four. Great-grandparents? Eight. Now... Here's where I definitely need my notes. So if you just do the math, think of 100 generations ago. That's pretty safe. That's 4,000 years ago. Uh, we, we know that we had, that this humans have been around for at least 4,000 years, if not for millions of years. Who knows? But let's just start small. Two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents. Keep multiplying it out. Two to the 100th power. 100 generations ago, how many biological unions had to have come together for you to be sitting here today? So here's the answer. 1 nonillion, 267 octillion, 650 septillion, 600 sextillion, 228 quintillion, 229 quadrillion, 401 trillion, 496 billion, 703 million, 205,376. In other words, there had to be something on, along the lines of 2.5 followed by 29 zeros of successful biological unions coming together for you to be existent. And now, doing the math as well in terms of when a man and a woman come together on a given month, there's really only a 7% chance of conception, fertilization, and a live birth. So your existence depended upon a gamble of everything on a 7% chance bet being one 2.5 with 29 zeros behind it times in a row without a single failure. That's how statistically impossible even just part of the calculations are proving the point that your life is a remarkable and impossible miracle. So that's the third thought, just to think 
a bit about on the front end of the sermon this morning. How often do you think about that? And how often do you consider that your life is this miracle, this statistically impossible miracle? My supposition, I mean, if, if we're all dwelling on that richly, like all the time, then Craig's done a remarkable job as a pastor here, and we can go home, because my supposition is that we don't dwell richly on that all the time. The scriptures talk about the ability to, Paul prays for us to have the ability to conceive and perceive and receive the love of God for us, how deep and how broad and how wide this love is. My supposition is that we're not deeply and holistically and abidingly dwelling on the remarkable fact of the miraculous nature of our very existence. So that's my supposition, is that we're all in the same boat. And if that describes you, um, the good news is that you're not crazy. Uh, The good news, if you want to think of it this way, is that we believe the scriptures reveal that there's actually this sinister conspiracy afoot to keep you from believing this. Theologians have talked for generations about the, the conspiracy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. These three forces coming together to undo you, to ruin you, to get you off track, to keep you from dwelling upon God's love for you, from meditating and abiding, that there's this conspiracy afoot. And so I think in every one of my sermons I try to use arguably at least one stupid joke. Maybe some people would say everything I say is relatively stupid. But at any rate, here's my one stupid joke today. Is the man who was feeling anxious and worried all the time and just feeling sort of people all around him kind of didn't have his best interest at heart. And so he goes and he meets with a therapist. And after some weeks together, the therapist comes back and says, I've I've been thinking and thinking through your situation, and I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is, don't worry, you're not paranoid. The bad news is, everyone is out to get you. So that's this idea that, weirdly, that's what the scriptures teach. And we live relatively oblivious to the fact that we have a raging enemy. The Bible talks about him as the evil one prowling around, seeking to destroy souls, together with cultural forces at play that seek to undermine your sense of self and your sense of the value of who you are, combined, unfortunately, with our own sin and sin nature, which stiff-arms this idea and doesn't want to believe and receive it for various reasons, that the world, the flesh, and the devil are this vast conspiracy, a vast right-wing conspiracy, a vast left-wing conspiracy, a vast middle-of-the-road conspiracy. It's just a conspiracy, a vast conspiracy to undo your thinking, to keep you from dwelling and meditating upon the first couple of things we were saying, the love of God as your Father, and then the last thing we said, your own miraculous existence. My parents live um, somewhat close to, the, to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where in the American Civil War, the pivotal battle, the Gettysburg, Battle of Gettysburg, um, President Lincoln, of course, giving his Emancipation Proclamation there, 
But the battle itself, as I understand it, and I'm just like not a military historian at all, um, but as I understand it, there was one key part of that battlefield that would control the whole battlefield, and it was a, sort of a, a rise called Little Round Top, and that the whole battle was essentially in this vast battlefield was this intense conflict over that one couple of square acres of land. In the midst of hundreds of acres, they were north and south were fighting to win the high ground. And so we just, we can think that through and understand it's because of the strategy of it all. Controlling that high ground, they could then control everything. This is Paul's thinking as he writes to the Galatians in our sermon text today. And this is what he's noticed and diagnosed in their lives, is that they've lost the battle. Forces came in. Some of those forces were their own bad ideas, their own sin, but it was also external forces came in and took over the high ground, took over the little round top of their conscience, of their mind. And now everything's ruined in their conceptions of reality because they've lost the sense of the love of God, God as Father, and they've, sensed the sense of their, they've lost the sense that they, their own lives are this miraculous existence. They've lost that. And so what we're saying this morning is what the Scriptures are teaching, that this recognition that God is our Father, it really does change everything. We're going to look at four ways that sort of I mean, how would you, how would you now, um, I mean, we're going to let the, the text itself sort of structure what we're saying, but how would you structure the category of everything? I mean, go big or go, go home. I'm going to now say that God, this, this reality changes everything, and who knows how to structure it, but I'm going to structure it this way, that this knowledge of our being sons and daughters of God this receiving it and dwelling upon it changes everything. First of all, it changes our relationship with God himself. Secondly, it changes our relationship with others. Thirdly, it changes our relationship with this life that God has given us. And then finally, our, our circumstances, our context, our relationship with that. And then finally, it changes our relationship with our own selves. That seems to cover the category of everything, but we're going to look at this, this text with those headings in just a bit, let's pray. Father, we ask you now to deepen and, and deepen our appreciation, our reception, our internalization of these remarkable truths that your word reveals. Even as we begun our prayer just a moment ago, we called you Father. And hopefully that does roll off our tongues very easily to call you Father not so much because it's a habit, although good habits are good things, but because we want to be, to, for that to have flowed from our heart, for that to be the controlling paradigm of how we approach you, how we approach all of life. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that your spirit is here preaching your word to us now. We pray for your good help right now in Christ's name. Amen. If you have that text in front of you, I'm not sure, sometimes we put it up on the screen, other times um, you just have to remember it, but that Galatians 3 text from 23 all the way to chapter 4, verse 7, we're going to make those 
comments along those four lines here. Now, notice how the passage begins where Paul is writing to the Galatians and he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that, and then if you're reading, you can see what comes next. And there it is up there. Christ came, there on the fourth line, Christ came, why? In order that, what? In order that we might be justified by faith. Here's a, another point as we, as we move into this idea of relationship with God, relationship with others, etc. Is that this awareness, this receiving, this understanding that God is our Father can't be built and constructed in midair. It can only be built on the foundation of our being justified by faith. This is why Christ came. He came to bring justification by faith. The rest of Galatians and, of course, the scriptures flesh out what that means. This wonderful and compelling idea that the God of the universe has put into place his law the expression of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And that law is over us, holding us captive, requiring obedience of us. That law, he talks about, we were held captive under it. That our relationship to God is mediated by the law. You can get to God through the law, if you obey that law perfectly, personally, not Craig obeying it on your behalf, certainly not me on your behalf, perfectly personally and perpetually. If you obey God's law, his revelation of the good, the true, and the beautiful, personally, perfectly, and perpetually, you can find true relationship with God. But even if you then did have that relationship, all you would have is a relationship with God as your creator and God as the just judge that is now pleased with you. And that's a wonderful thing to have. That's a wonderful thing to have. In fact, it's a necessary thing to have. But it's not enough. And of course, that method is impossible. That's the whole point of the rest of the passage. That's why Christ had to come. He had to come. Why? In order that we might be justified by faith. His coming means that he takes on all those requirements of the law, fulfills them personally, perfectly, and perpetually, takes all of our disobedience, our failures, upon himself, is crucified, atones for that, and then gives us in return all of his obedience. That's justification. Justification is far better than simply Jesus taking all of our sins off of us. Hooray, I'm now morally neutral. Rather, justification is him taking all of our sins off of us and then putting onto us his justness, his righteousness. We are declared just. Now, Paul is going on to say, 
you can't build the incredible foundation or you can't get to the place of receiving him as your father unless it's built on the incredible foundation of justification by faith. You can't just construct God as my father in midair. Why not? Apart from justification, why not? Your conscience won't allow it. Imagine if you had a father, and obviously I don't know all of you, and there are people who have had fathers like this to one degree or another, but imagine you had a father who was your biological father and who had you in the household and who said, I am your father, and you're in my household, and your status of remaining in this household, I love you so much, and so I, I, I pour out my expectations that are all good and true and beautiful. And your status of remaining in this household is utterly dependent on your obedience to that. To the degree to which you go against my goodness, my truth, or beauty, you lose your status. You're no longer my son. That's what it would be like to move forward in the Christian life. God is my father, not having let the law be removed from your conscience in this sense. Where he goes on to say, the, the, the idea down there in what, one, two, three, line six or whatever, no longer under a guardian. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Here's a stupid joke, at least number two of my sermons. No longer in the original Greek means no longer. Imagine that. It's an extreme and wonderful and exclusive phrase. That means once Christ has come, there is no sense in which you are under the law in that regard to condemn. But too many of us, and this is what Paul diagnosed in the Galatians with Peter as a particular example, and we'll get to that in a moment, he diagnosed that they were trying to move forward with this idea, God is my father, while still trying to live under the law to prove how just and right they were. And one cannot do that. You can't have in your conscience two fathers, as it were, at the same time. And so, J.I. Packer is this wonderful, remarkable theologian who sums up some of the thoughts we've already said this morning. Another thing he says along these lines is this. He says, this foundation of justification by faith is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the good news. But it's not the highest privilege of the good news. That the good news, the highest privilege is that God is our Father. But you can't get to that yet unless you first understand and receive this justification by faith. Now, if we jumped ahead, and we'd have to scroll up on the screen, but down to chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Yep, there it is, near the very bottom there. We already saw that Paul gave us the reason why Christ came. Why did Christ come? So that we might be justified by faith. But now he builds on that, and he, and he, and he says another reason why Christ came. 
And it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. There's the justification um, language being used in a sort of a parallel way. But then he goes further. Christ came so that, there's that phrase again, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We must begin with this foundation of justification by faith, but do not stop there. Move forward to the rest of the good news, the highest privilege of the good news, that we, might, we receive adoption as sons. So that's our first major point this morning in terms of how this reception of the good news changes everything. It changes your relationship with God. It changes your perceptions and conceptions of your relationship with God. You no longer merely see him as your creator. Now, I hope you see him as your creator because he is, but he's not merely that. And you no longer merely see him as the just judge of all the world, full of all goodness and truth and beauty, and from whom goodness and truth and beauty flow. He is not less than that. I hope you see him as that as well. But you must see him as more than that. You must see him as your father. You must realize that he has brought you into the most intimate relationship possible. Now, whenever we begin thinking about this idea of God is our father, Jesus Christ came to reveal that truth more clearly than ever. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. And in that Sermon on the Mount, he just unpacks and reveals, God is your Father. Do not worry. Why? Because you have a Father. Do not covet. Why? Because you have a Father. Here's how to pray. Pray saying, Our Father. How do you know you're putting my words into practice? Because you see God as Father. This is the sum of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes to reveal this, that this truth changes everything. It changes your relationship with God. You now see him as your father. But remember, back to what we were saying earlier, we're not crazy that that is very difficult for us to grasp, for us to receive deeply and holistically and abidingly. Why? Because there's this conspiracy the world, the flesh, and the devil don't want you believing that God is like this. Well, how do we see this? I, I, after the first sermon this morning, a couple people and I were talking about this based on, as they were thinking through the sermons, and somebody said, like, you know, isn't that interesting that, you know, we all have a relationship with, like, our mailman. But if, like, your mailman is, like, cruel and harsh, that doesn't like mess with your brain and your mind and your soul and your conceptions of God. Like I, you just like you're able to compartmentalize that. My mailman's a jerk. That doesn't mess with my. But if one's own earthly father has failed you in any way, guess what? He has. <laughs> I mean, my children already know. Like maybe I do my best to set aside some funds for college or whatever. But really, I'm setting aside the funds for them to have like future therapy on the basis of, like, having been raised in my household. If your earthly father has failed you in, in, in any way, you see, the devil masses his troops against little round top. He could care less how you conceive of your mailman. 
But this is why it's so common, I think, in earthly experience for some of us to have had such terrible relationships with an earthly father. So now there's just a skewing and a, a difficulty to come near to God because if I've got to come near to a father, then bad things happen after that. But the scriptures and Jesus Christ comes to clean our minds of all that and to show us who God really is. He's not, he is not the God that gets misrepresented too often by earthly fathers. My children hopefully know this about you know, how their life is going to turn out. He is not the God who is too often misrepresented by earthly fathers. Jesus comes to reveal who this father is. The second big thing this passage talks about, though, is that the true reception of this changes into our internalizing it, changes our relationships with everybody else. And here's where Peter becomes a test case. And if you read the rest of the book of Galatians, you see in the previous chapter, chapter 2, that Paul had to confront the great apostle Peter personally and, and, in, and, 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 and in public about his failure in relationship with others. It says in chapter 2 that he had been eating with the Gentiles. He was fellowshipping as a Jew with Gentiles. It was, he saw that as, as, as part of the future movement of the gospel. He was internalizing what was read for us from Isaiah. You remember, I, you know, Isaiah talks about this great coming Messiah, and the Lord says to him, it's not enough for me to give you the task of calling my people back to yourself. I am also sending you to all nations. It's not just going to be Jews, it's going to be Gentiles, it's going to be the whole world. And Peter internalized that, realized that, was given a revelation in Acts 10 that all people are clean before God in that regard and are to be reached with the gospel. But then peer pressure gets him. <laughs> and in the book of Galatians, he backslides and he's treating people as first-class citizens and second-class citizens. Now, what happened? What happened was that he lost the battle of Little Round Top. For a season in his life, he was conceiving of God as father who also was pleased by his obedience to the law. So my being an ethnic Jew and keeping the ceremonial law, that is really what's earning me real credibility with you. And I see these Gentiles who aren't doing that, so I have to treat them as second-class citizens. He had somehow retreated in his conceptions of God. The vast conspiracy got to him, and he lost the sense that God... God as Father changes everything in your relationship with each other. And so here, Peter, or Paul, who's already confronted him in public, and one is really very, one can be very confident that probably even by the time Paul wrote this letter, Peter had publicly repented. Certainly by the time Peter wrote his own letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, which took place after this, and it was just full of an obvious recognition of his own sin in all these regards. So he's already publicly confronted Peter, but now what he does is he just goes for the jugular. In this passage, it's up a little bit, but where he says, this idea of the fatherhood of God, it means that now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
if relationship with God is mediated on the basis of something you bring to the table, then that something is something that you are going to require others to bring as well, and when they don't have it, you'll treat them as second class. And so God is more pleased with me because I'm a male. Well, then females are second class, or vice versa. God is more pleased with me because I'm a Gentile, and Jews are second class, or vice versa. God is more pleased with me because I'm economically in a position of self-sufficiency, or vice versa. God is more pleased with me because I work hard as a servant. That's why he's more pleased with me, and you who don't have that are second class, and that sort of mindset reveals that one has lost the true sense of God as Father. Because the sense of God as Father brings this wonderful leveling where we're all one in Christ. This is the hope of the church and what we've seen realized throughout church history in profound ways and with moments and terrible seasons of backsliding. But it's our hope for the future is that this recognition, as we all internalize it more and more, we actually begin to realize that the other person who is a fellow believer is not just a fellow believer, they're actually our brother or our sister. We're in the same spiritual family together. And it even transforms, doesn't it, the way you would view other people who aren't yet believers. We all have a tendency to just do the us and them thing. And if we're not careful about that, this line we've drawn, I'm on this side of the line and those others are on the other side of the line. If we're not careful about it, then we stop seeing them as individuals we depersonalize them and they just become the part of the blob of humanity, then the next step is they kind of even lose their humanity. They're just, they're just other. They're just part of the blob. And then if we're not careful, we then demonize them. That not only are they not a person, but they're actually worthy of contempt. And what does that reveal? That reveals that one has lost the sense that God is the Father who creates a world where every single human life is this profound miracle that had a 1.2 trillion whatever, 29 zeros, impossible like, you know, possibility of existence. But the moment you lose God as Father, then your treatment of those that aren't believers gets more and more downgraded. But when you remember that God is Father and that this is the mission of the whole thing, it's the whole so that Jesus was sent. He was sent so what? So that people could receive adoption. When we see that, then the unbeliever no longer becomes other. The unbeliever becomes a potential brother or sister. Thirdly, if it's true that God is Father, it changes our conceptions of Him, our relationship with others, our relationship with the life God has given us. Now, here's where, and, and um, here's where, I think for the really for the first time, um, as I, as I was studying through for this sermon, the first time I was understanding something um, about this doctrine of adoption. And I, I you know, just d- different people and commentators were pointing out that the conception of adoption back when Paul wrote this letter, was actually very different than how I'm conceiving of adoption right now as a 20th, 21st century American. Most of us probably, when you hear the word adoption, what comes to mind is like a baby or a young child, maybe a foster child, but a child being adopted. But J.I. Packer points out, and other theologians and, and historians point out, that actually in the ancient Near East, in Paul's world, 
the conception of adoption was very different. It was rather, it was, I mean, this is a loose analogy, but it was rather more like, um, I don't know, Yale's secret societies or something, where it was for grown-up adults, young adults, who had proved how much they can bring to the table. And so some power, some powerful family, gives you their name to carry on. So it was precisely your own worth and proven ability that got you adopted. And Paul turns that whole idea upside down. But when I'm conceiving of adoption in that way, um, or let me, let me put it differently. When I'm conceiving of adoption as, okay, yeah, babies get adopted all the time. Thank you. God adopted me when I was, when I was a baby. Um, it misses the whole nature of the, of the case that what Paul is saying is for God to adopt you, it wasn't just in your infancy before you had done much of anything. It was rather as a known adult, <laughs> as it were, where he knew all of your failings and weaknesses and chose this remarkable grace to bring you in anyway. With that in mind, realizing that God is our Father, now we move to- forward in our life, realizing that God has this very particular purpose for each one of us, that there's never been anybody like us, there'll never be anybody like us ever again. Again, do the math, back 100 generations, this is a statistical impossibility that I would even exist. And so the reasons why I live here and now are complex, mysterious, and all from God's goodness, truth, and beauty. The only way to really be believing that is to know he's your father. And the final thing is is this, is if it's true that God is your father, that certainly changes our relationship with him. He's no longer merely judge and creator. He's our father. It certainly changes our relationship with others. They become our brothers and sisters or our potential brothers and sisters. It certainly changes our relationship with the life God has given us. We realize he's put us where he has us for good, true, and beautiful reasons, and we live with meaning. But it also changes our relationship with our own selves. Now, this is is, um, really profound. I I, uh, tied for first with Rachel's father as my favorite seminary professor that I had. I had to say tied for first. but it was a, a counseling professor I had who helped to point out from Scripture that how these beautiful doctrines of justification as the foundation, adoption as the highest privilege, work together. That Christ came to provide justification, but also to provide adoption, and how those things work together, and he put it, put it this way. That the human person, that we all have guilt problems and shame problems. Guilt has to do with sin failure, moral failure, or lack thereof, or whatever. And justification takes care of guilt. Justification takes care of sin. But more deeply than that, we all have shame struggles, where it's not really about what we've done or not done. It's about our very sense of self. It's sometimes even hard to put into words. 
And so that's where adoption comes in. If you are struggling with a sense of self, like, I mean, think of, I just think of the words of Pascal, the French philosopher and mathematician. He just says, what sort of freak then is man? Exalted being of the universe, sinkhole of refuse of the universe. High as the angels, lower than the beasts. We are freak and chaotic. What sort of freak then is man? If, if your sense of self, if you're so... Is, is, is so twisted and, 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 and um, the, the, the shame is in deep places and hard to root out. Knowing that you're forgiven helps. It certainly helps. It certainly, certainly helps. But it's not enough. You have to also know that your fundamental identity is you're no longer the chaotic freak. Higher than the angels sometimes, lower than the beast other times. Your true identity is a son or daughter of God. And so Christ came to deal with our sin and our guilt, justification by faith, but he also came to deal with our shame, our sense of identity, by adopting us, making us sons and daughters. This really does change everything. This knowledge and awareness that God is your father changes your relationship with him, with others, with the life God's given you and with yourselves. Now here's one last thing just to think through as we move towards the Lord's Supper. It's an imperfect illustration, but it's very powerful to me. I just love this ending part, this sort of climactic moment in this movie, uh, Good Will Hunting. I hope you're relatively familiar with that movie, but if not, here's the basic plot. It was, I think it was Matt Damon's very first movie. Matt Damon is this young man who's um, a blue-collar kid from, from Boston, but he's a mathematical genius. But his life is full of violence and, and um, despair and uncertainty. And, and so as a part of a plea arrangement with the court system, he has to see a counselor. And Robin Williams is the actor that plays this counselor in the movie Goodwill Hunting. And if you remember the movie in the climactic part where this relationship develops and it's sort of a combative relationship, then they come to a place of great mutual respect and then even incredible affection. And then there's this key climactic uh, meeting where, as it turns out, the Matt Damon character had been an orphan. He'd been, as it were, a slave under a law, an oppressive law. He had not had an earthly father. And he had been horribly abused and mistreated in a series of foster care. And so Robin Williams is now trying to break through all that, and he, and he just comes to him and, and he says, you know, you just need to know this. You need to know that it was not you. This horrific abuse that you suffered, it was not your fault. And you think about what I was trying to say earlier in the sermon about the conspiracy, you know. It's not your fault that the devil <laughs> despises you and is constantly trying to take out of your conscience your enjoyment for the love of God, your reception of the fatherhood of God for you. It's, in, in many respects, not your fault because you've got an enemy. Now, obviously, to the, to the degree to which we ourselves are stiff-arming it, there's, there's sin there that we just get cleansed from. So these illustrations are, you know, they're limited as they go, but here's what happens then, of course. He says to him, it's not your fault not your fault, Will. And Will says, I know, I know it wasn't your fault. 
and the counselor takes a half step closer. It's not okay. I know that. I know that. Thank you for telling me. It's not okay. I'm telling you, I know that already. Now just stop. Really, it's not okay. And at that point, Will just breaks down. He's furious. Are you trying to mess with me? Are you playing me? Don't you dare tell me that it's not my fault if you're just playing me. And he's, and he's fighting him and starting to hit him. And the counselor doesn't back down but moves forward and says, it's not okay. And finally he has a breakdown where he realizes he internalized it. And he receives this in the movie sense, in the movie plot, the depth of the good news that he needed to hear. I watch that movie, and it just makes me think of my receiving the good news that God is my Father. Anybody in the church every week tells me that, and I say, I know that. Thank you for telling me that. And the church says it again, and I say, I know that. Thank you for telling me that. And the church says it again, and I say, this is annoying. I'm telling you, I know this. And then the church says it again, and I say, don't you dare say something that is too good to be true. You're messing with me. You're going to play with me. There is no such thing as heaven and this goodness that the church, I, and then the church keeps moving forward and tells me, God is your father. He loves you. And this is why Paul says, that the most impossible thing in this world, he says, I pray for strength, for you to have strength to be able to see how and receive how deep and how broad and how long the love of God is for you. This is our calling each week. This is why we come to church. This is why we go on church retreats. This is what I hope you do for your own soul. Regularly, as often as you can. Counsel your own soul to that point of breakthrough so that you internalize this good news. Receive it by faith. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, that you just love us and you never, ever abandon the good work you've begun in us. You never, ever cast us out of your family. You're always moving towards us. And we know that among many other things, the heart of what you're talking to us about constantly and regularly is your love for us, that we would come to know it and rely upon it, that we would dwell in your love, in the fact that you are our Father and we are your sons and daughters, that that would become the deepest truth that controls our very lives, that we, can, that we would apply it holistically to every part of our lives and life experience and that we would abide in it now, tomorrow, and for all the days to come. This is your work in our hearts. This is why we're praying now. We can't just talk ourselves into this. We're asking you to do this work for us. Thank you for the means of grace here in this church, this worship service. Thank you for the Lord's Supper now that we're about to partake of. In Christ's wonderful name, who came to redeem us, who came to provide adoption for us. Amen.